open God's holy word, Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. Our focus this morning will be on Philippians 2, 1 through 4, we'll be reading 1, 27 through 2, 11. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or whether I am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponent. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray. A holy and triune God. Blessedly three, perfectly one, forgive us our selfishness, our bitterness, our anger, our, resent, our, our resentment, our disunity. Forgive us that we attempt to sow division, the church that you've made one. By the blood of your Son. Father, as our Lord prayed. We know you've heard that prayer. That in Christ, your church is one. But Father, experientially in our practice. May we be one. As you have made us to be one. As you are one. Grant us humility. Unity in mind and heart. Will. That together we might. Serve the cause of Christ. The gospel. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. Unity. Is not a. Helium filled, not a collection of helium filled balloons anchored by streams. Church unity, not a collection of helium filled balloons anchored by strings. It's like a fortress wall anchored in the earth. Unity is not a thing you play with, unity is a thing you fight. I fear that whenever the church preaches, pursues unity today, so often she's after fun and floaty balloons rather than a 
strong fortress. And balloons are easily popped. Mark Devereux said that what you win them with is what you win them to. And I take it to be a self-evident corollary of this, though not quite as catchy, that what you unite your people with is simply, it's kind of a tautology, I guess, what they're united by. What you unite your people with is what they're united by. Weak glue is easily broken, and man makes for weak glue. The things of man make for weak glue. Many attempts at unity are nothing more than gathering the children to look at the new shiny balloons. And the major problem in this is that man is trying to create unity rather than working out and living the unity that God has created. It is. There was perhaps, I think it, it's true, I, I don't think there's any question to it, there's never been a greater division manifest between men than that that exists between Jew and Gentile. And in Ephesians 2 we read that in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. And peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access. In one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But are fellow citizens with the saints. And members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so you, can, you see in light of what Paul says there in Ephesians 2, why later in Ephesians chapter 4, he goes on to command them to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Not to create unity, not to manufacture it, but to maintain it. It's something that God has done. It's been established by Christ. Paul has calls for unity. They're not floaty calls. They're anchored. Martin Lloyd-Jones in assessing the ecumenical calls for unity that were going on in his day, said, To me, one of the major tragedies of the hour, and especially in the realm of the church, is that most of the time seems to be taken up by the leaders in preaching about unity instead of preaching the gospel that alone can produce unity. If all the churches in the world became amalgamated, it would not make the slightest difference to the man in the street. He's not outside the churches because the churches are disunited. He's outside because he likes his sin, because he is a sinner, because he's ignorant of spiritual realities. He is no more interested in the problem of unity than the man in the moon. So with this, I hope you're seeing something. Two things. That unity is anchored, doesn't just float. I hope that will be filled out, but I hope you're getting a sense of it. And with that, with it, the, the sense of it being anchored is that it's for a fight. It's not something fun and floaty. It's a fortress for a fight. Church unity, not fun and floaty. It's a fortress for a fight. 
Paul's call for unity here begins with, so, it's anchored somewhere. The clear link between 127 and 30, 2, 1 through 4, is unity. 127 speaks of their standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. And now in 2, 1 through 4, we read of them being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, if you remember in 127 through 30, there was one central command around which everything else is structured. The single command is, live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And everything else is rooted in that singular command. Now in 2, 1 through 4, again, though the English translations obscure it, we have a single command. And everything else that you have is related, rooted in it. There's a single command and you get lost because of all the other commands that you think you see there, which are really simply participial modifiers telling you how to obey that one single command. So, the single command that you have in 2, 1 through 4 is a conclusion to the single command given in 127 through 30. The command you have in 2, 1 through 4 is a conclusion to the command given in 127 through 30. The first command was to live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's an all-encompassing command. I've argued every other command that we have in this book is rooted in that singular command. That's evidenced by 2.1. The first command he goes into, so, it's a conclusion from that first command. Now, this first command, live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, is clearly It's a command in reference to the gospel, which is to say it's a command in reference to Christ. It's a command in reference to God. And essentially, argued before, it works out this way. It is at root the same as the command to love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Now, whenever we get into 2, 1 through 4, the command that is a consequence, a conclusion that Paul draws from that first command concerns unity, and it's essentially this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your brother. The second command really serves then as a test of the first. How do you know you love God? How do you know you're living as a heavenly citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ? The real litmus test of this, that you're not fooling yourself, is how you relate to your brothers, sisters in Christ. How you relate to the body of Christ. If you're loving the head, you will love the body attached to the head. If you follow the logic of the first command, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you follow the logic, you come to this conclusion. So, 1 John 4, 20-21 tells us, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother... He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have received from him, whoever loves God must also love brother. Now, as we come to the command, we're getting there. We have to reason from the first. As we deal with this command, we're going to see that it pertains to unity You have to reason from the first. Otherwise, it floats. We're not playing with balloons here. The command in 127 is all-encompassing. Our pursuit of unity within the fellowship of Christ is to be an act of obedience in living worthy Of the gospel of Christ. Otherwise it floats. The result of obedience to living 
as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ concerning these Philippians is that Paul will hear, if they're doing that, Paul will hear that they're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith. You're beginning to sense it more? This call for unity is anchored. It's a fortress. It's for a fight. Unity is not for fun or a fight. This call for unity is not first. It's not foremost that we might serve one another. The call for unity here is that we might serve the gospel of Christ. The unity that we experience and we share in Christ does speak to the joy of the church triumphant, the church at peace, the church as she is in heaven, the saints that have already entered into the presence of our Lord. The, the, the joy we experience in the unity of the church speaks to that eternal joy. But as of right now, until we experience that to die is gain, we must remember that to live is Christ and that to live is Christ in this world means the church militant, the church armed, the church at war. We are to be united like the stones of a fortress and the mortar, the only mortar that can hold us together is the gospel of Christ. The very thing that we fight for, the very thing that we fight with is that which binds us together. And as soon as we stop to fight for and with the gospel, we will find the unity that we have enjoyed dissipate. The walls will begin to crumble. Because there's nothing other than Christ strong enough to bind us together. The very thing which we are commissioned to strive for, to stand firm regarding, to, to guard, fight with, that which holds us together. You begin to sense this reality as these conditions are teased out that Paul gives for this command. Four conditions. If your commanding officer came to you and said, don't push the red button unless one, two, three, and four, all four, you might conclude, red button, sounds scary, I'm never going to have to push it, four conditions. That's not how Paul gives these four conditions here, exactly the opposite. These conditions are not obstacles to obedience, they compel obedience. These conditions don't qualify your obedience. They demand obedience. Like if your mother says, if you're breathing, clean your room. It's that kind of condition. As Gordon Fee puts it, the if clauses turn out not to express supposition, but presupposition. These are not things, suppose these things happen, well then this command. No, Paul is presupposing all these things as self-evident and true. Thus, obey this command. And these ifs in the New American Standard, the Christian Standard, the King James, all do a better job here. The if is, is repetitive. It should go before every one of these. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy. These ifs are not meant to bring about doubt. They are a rhetorical device meant to bring home the absolute necessity, the, the, the weight of, of, of obedience that we should feel in regard to this command. As we examine these ifs, you'll see that there's a kind of vagueness about them. And I think that's intentional. It's indicated by the word any. If there's any encouragement, if there is any comfort from love. You see, Paul is appealing with these ifs to the shared Christian experience. And while your experience won't be identical 
to this person's experience, there is a foundational kind of sharedness to the Christian life that Paul is appealing to. If, if you know anything of any of these things, that's the basis that he puts underneath this command. First condition, if there's any encouragement in Christ. The word you have as encouragement is most often translated that way in the ESV 12 of 29 times. The next most frequent translation, no, it's most often, excuse me, translated comfort 12 of 29 times. 8 of 29 times, it's encouragement. In the old sense of that word, encouraging, to fill with courage, uh, emboldening would be, I think, the best translation. If, if there's any emboldening in Christ. And so what's foggy here is this union with Christ. If you're in Christ and you're drawing any kind of encouragement, is the sense then, is this encouragement being mediated first just you and Christ from His Word, from prayer? Is it between you and Christ or is it conceiving of this encouragement coming to us through the body of Christ. I think it's intentionally vague. If you're in Christ, it doesn't matter the means. The Word of God, as you're in your home, private prayer and devotion, or if it's the Word of God through the body of Christ, if there's any Encouragement in Christ. If you've sensed anything of a kind of emboldening in Christ, that's the condition. And with that, now do you see how this relates back to partnership in the gospel, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel? And as we're doing that, is there any kind of emboldening that you've ever experienced in Christ in that cause? Second condition, if there's any comfort from love. Whose love is in view here? Is this the kind of comfort that we draw from God's love for us or the comfort that we draw from the saints' love that's expressed to one another? And again, what's the difference in a sense? The question creates disunity where there's unity. Listen to how both of these things get wrapped up in Paul's blessing to the Corinthians in his second letter to them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. If there's any comfort that's exchanged in our love for one another, it's only because we're acting as a conduit of the comfort with which our Lord has comforted us. Our God is the God of all comfort. And now, anticipating the next qualification, if there's any participation in the Spirit, do you suspect that there's a Trinitarian shape to these first three qualifications? If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit. Whose love is in view chiefly? Any comfort from love? Yes, it may be our love for one another, but the love with which we love one another is God's love. If you're not convinced, listen to how Paul closes his second letter to the Corinthians. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. The God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Encouragement in Christ, think grace in Christ. Comfort from love, the Father's love. Any participation, it's the same word, fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Third, if there's any participation in the Spirit, can be translated fellowship. It's the same word you have translated partnership in verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel. And I want to say that this fellowship or participation or partnership in the Spirit is much to do with the partnership in the gospel that Paul speaks of in 1 and verse 5. Again, there's a kind of vagueness to this. Fellowship in the Spirit. Does that refer to the communion we have with God by the Spirit? Or does that refer to the communion in the Spirit which we enjoy with one another? The answer is, if there's any. And they all have the same root. Have you sensed any kind of communion with God in the Spirit? As you are a temple of the Lord. Have you sensed any communion with God in the Spirit as the church is the temple of the Lord? And then fourth, if there's any affection and sympathy. Now, the previous three all have reference to a particular person in the Trinity. This fourth one looks at the body directly. Any affection, the word refers to the bowels. If you're moved, and then sympathy, pity, mercy, compassion are equally good translations here. If you're moved with pity, mercy, compassion towards one another, if you've experienced any of that in the life of the church, if you've experienced any of that in Christ, if you've experienced that, you're a saint. And if you haven't experienced that, you are not. And if you haven't experienced that, you need to realize any call for unity and love is floating. You won't know it. You can't know it. And so before you try to do unity between you and man, you need unity and reconciliation between you and God. This kind of thing can't float. The world tries to create it. Floating out there. You see it. You see how self-destructive it is. Like the intolerant calls for toleration. What is the command, though? Got the qualifications. We realize it's anchored. What's the command? And it's can be surprising when you first look at it. It's stated two ways. Two different angles that you can look at this command from. That's the first one that surprises you. Complete my joy. Paul's command to them after all of this is complete my joy. The second one it is the same thing looked at from a different angle, is be of the same mind. That's the single command. Every other command that you think you're looking at in 2, 1 through 4 is a participial modifier telling you how to be of the same mind. How do you be of the same mind? Being in full accord. How do you be of the same mind? Having the same love. One command though. Be of the same mind. Complete my joy. Be of the same mind. As far as Paul's joy, he's already expressed joy in these Philippians. He says he, he makes mention of them in his prayers with joy, 1 and verse 4. He says that they are his joy and crown, chapter 4 and verse 1. In 4, 10 through 13, he speaks of the joy that he experienced whenever, they, whenever he received their gift for him. But when Paul asks that they complete his joy, 
that they bring it to consummation as it, as it were. When he asks for them to complete his joy. It's not in reference to their care for him. But their care for one another. So you see at first what shocks you about this is after all that, that sounds like a really selfish command. Complete my joy. But the way his joy is completed is by their being of the same mind that concerns their relationship to one another, not to him. Paul's joy is brought to overflowing not by their care for him, but by their care for one another. Don't you sense as you read this letter as a whole, read through it. And as you read through it as a whole, don't you don't you Hear Paul saying, in effect, thank you for the gift. It brought me such joy. But, if you really want to bring me joy. You see, he's leveraging their love for him, which they've expressed. You really want to complete my joy. Be of the same mind. John said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth, or John 4. I have no desire to add to John or to modify John. But simply, I think I'm being faithful in bringing out what's there. If we are walking in the truth, we are necessarily walking in the truth together. Paul demonstrates that the godly shepherd has no greater joy than to hear that his children are walking in the truth together. The command that they will obey, completing Paul's joy, to be of the same mind. What does that mean? We can look both backward and forward to get clarity, but let's Let's start back and work our way forward. 1 verse 5. Paul speaks of their partnership in the gospel. In 1 12 through 18, he speaks of those who are preaching Christ with selfish ambitions. But because Christ is central in Paul's affections, he says, Christ is being preached. Doesn't bother me. Gospel Centeredness will diffuse many disunifying bombs. We can, if we're all centered on the gospel, even whenever someone else's motives get wonky, we can, and we will, our motives will get weird and out of tune. But so long as we keep centering on this, the cause of Christ and the gospel, then we'll say, I think that was for show. But preaching the gospel, being of the same mind is being gospel-minded. 127, Paul says he wants to hear that they're standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, being of the same mind as being gospel-minded. With those conditions that were necessary for this command, can you not sense even more so, not, not simply that being gospel-minded, being of the same mind as being gospel-minded, but it's the gospel itself that produces this. There's this shared experience. Paul is calling for unity on the basis of what is already there. Don't manufacture it. It's already there. There's encouragement in Christ. There's comfort from love. There's, There's participation in the Spirit and affection and sympathy. This call for unity doesn't float. It's anchored and it's anchored in Christ and what He's done and the fruits of His redemption, the blessings of His redemption that have already come. In 1 Corinthians 2.16, Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. We have it. The way you think spiritually, whenever you understand God's truth, whenever you 
whenever you love it, whenever you want to obey it, the way you reason and think about those things is because by the Spirit, you have the mind of Christ. And your brother across from you has that same mind. And it's this mind that Paul is seeking to foster, to kindle, to breathe into flame, to stir, to strengthen. This is why he will go on to say in verses 5 and 6, have this mind, the mind he's calling for here, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see it? What we're called to do in maintaining the unity is not to create and manufacture something. It is to, verses 12 and 13, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's working out what God has done. If there's disunity in the church, the reason is this simple. We're thinking more of some finite thing than we are of Christ. We, we will have aspects of our mind that we need to crucify, but we have the mind of Christ. If we're in Christ, we have that mind. And if we have that, you and the person across from you both have that mind. It does not matter how different your hobbies. It doesn't matter how different your vocations. It doesn't matter how different your socioeconomic levels are. You don't have to hunt for and manufacture unity. It is. You've been reconciled to one God by the body of Christ, by the blood of Christ, and made part of the body of Christ. So if there's disunity, because you're thinking of some finite thing more than Christ. Stop thinking you. Stop thinking stuff. Stop thinking idol. Stop thinking even lesser doctrines to a kind of degree. Elevating as though they were paramount. Which is really what you're doing whenever you pick out some kind of doctrine like that and elevate it to that level. Is using it for your own self-exaltation. Stop that and think with the mind of Christ. Set your mind on the things of Christ and not the things of this world. So we look forward now in verses 2 through 4 see all this brought out further. How are we to be of the same mind, having the same love? Again, I think there's a vague intentionality to this. Is it the love that we have, this, the shared love we have for God, or the shared love that we have for one another? And if you have one, well, you have the other. If you love God, you will love your brothers. And if you love your brothers, it's only because you love God. Have the same love. Be of the same mind. Next, being a full, in full accord. Or as the New American Standard, I think, is better at this point. Being united in spirit. Human spirit. There's to be a kind of esprit de corps. A shared mood and, and, and uh, uh, um, atmosphere, almost, if you will, among the saints. And then we're to be of the same mind, being of one mind. So the command is, be shared-minded. And the way you're to be shared-minded is to be single-minded. The shared mind is a focused mind. Our minds were not meant to just look at this world you were meant to look at this world through the lens of Christ. Everything that we look at is to be through that lens. Because all things are from Him, through Him, and to Him. And so, we will look at different things. And often we will look at things differently. But how much unity would there be if we would agree on this? We will look at everything through the lens of Christ. Saints, we fail to be as shared-minded as we could be 
because we are multi-minded. We're not shared-minded because we are not single-minded. We're multi-minded. And this doesn't mean that we don't think about a diversity of things, but we think of them all in light of the Christ who brings them all together. Think of the unity that would be enjoyed and known by the people of God if we would just earnestly pursue obedience to this command in Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are, of, that are on earth. Paul says things, yes, but you sense the unity involved in these things. Set your, thing, your mind on the things that are above where Christ is. Paul will do the same thing in this letter. Or in verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is honorable, whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything, any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. But whenever you're thinking about all these things, you're thinking of them with a single mind, a focused mind. And then finally, we come to this final modifier. How are we to be of the same mind? We're to be of the same mind, counting others more significant than ourselves, verse 3. And this final qualifier has a contrast and a qualifier itself. So you're to be of the same mind, counting others more significant than yourselves. What does that look like? Contrast. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And... Modifying phrase, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The mind singularly focused on Christ. Minds singularly focused on Christ. Will knit our souls together. So that because Christ is what we esteem most, we will esteem our brother's good as much as we esteem our own good. And what we're seeking concerning ourselves and concerning for our brothers chiefly is our good in Christ. Not what we want, but the cause of Christ. So look not only to your own interest and your interest as they are in submission to the cause of Christ, but to your brother's interest as they are in submission to the cause of Christ. You're not to be a slave to your brother's lust and passions of the flesh. What you're concerned for your brother is what will serve the cause of Christ. So as we are single-minded, partnering in the gospel, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, it will knit our souls so deeply together that any kind of manufactured unity will just seem cheap and flimsy, playful, like a matchbox tank alongside the real thing. When Christ is at the center, self gets put in in its place and others get lifted up. But what is supreme over all is Christ. The shared mind we are to have here, you see, then is a mind of sharing. It's this final descriptor that you have in verses 3 and 4 that I think most people have in mind whenever they, they speak of unity and call for unity. Do nothing from selfish ambition, conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's what people have in mind. The problem is that they go straight after that kind of thing. C.S. Lewis said something like, you cannot get secondary things by putting second things first. You can only get them by putting first things first. If Christ is not the beginning, the center, and the end, if He's not the source, the focus, and the goal, then something else is. And what it will be is ourselves. If we want unity of that kind of sort, what we're really saying is, don't disturb my peace and comfort. Everyone get along 
so it doesn't upset me. We want unity, really, then, to revolve around ourselves. We don't have that kind of gravity. God has created the new cosmos, of which the church is the expression in this age that's fading away of the new. God has created this new cosmos in Christ to center around His Son. It's unified. That's the way that universe works. We cause problems whenever we try to go our own direction. Unified new creation of God revolves around the Son who purchased it by His blood. He unifies. It is united. And we will experience that unity of the new cosmos more and more here and now as we are conformed more and more to the image of Christ. As we look less like this age that is fading and passing away and more like the age to come. Laying down our lives for our friends, looking to their interests as they serve the gospel of Christ. This is the very thing Paul has modeled already. He has said, my desire is to be with Christ, but it's more necessary for you That I remain in the flesh. And why does he remain in the flesh for them? For their progress and joy in the faith. This is why he says that his joy will be completed. Not in their looking to his needs. But to one another's. B.B. Warfield wrote. If we're to find unity. The unity. For which our master prayed. We are to seek it in our common relation. As Christians. In our one head. Our common redeemer and king. As mediated by our common possession of the one spirit. We are to remember that. Neither the center basis nor instrument of unity is earthly. Or to be discovered in any human thought order or organization. But as Principal Gore admirably expresses it. The instrument of unity is the Spirit. The basis of unity is Christ, the mediator. The center of unity is the heavens where the church's exalted head lives in eternal majesty, human yet glorified. Every Christian through whom flows the life of the Spirit imparted by the head is of the body which is one. In a word, the church is one, not by virtue of any efforts of ours to make it one, but by virtue of the divine life that binds it as his body to the one head. The true figure of the church is the circle. Every particle in the circumference is held in its relation to all other particles by the common relation of each to the center. As we cannot create this unity, neither can we destroy it. Unity is is. It is immutable. We cannot destroy it. We can fail to manifest and enjoy it this side of heaven though. So remember, this command is a conclusion to the one previously given. Live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. You see the particular kind of marching aspect then that this brings out in our pursuit of unity. If they... We live as heavenly citizens. The result will be that it's heard we're striving side by side. Standing firm. Concerning the faith of the gospel. Not frightened by our opponent. Our unity has marching order. And you can sense this in chapter 4 verses 2 through 3. Where you begin to see something of why Paul is writing as he is. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. To agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement, the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Or take Jesus' high priestly prayer. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may, be all, they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. 
that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Saints, Jesus' high priestly prayer has been answered. So as Richard Phillips says, perhaps the best way to deal with the so-called problem of unity is to deny that it exists. The church is one in Christ. Unity is not something that floats. It's not something we create. Unity is, and it is a fortress. It's anchored. It's steadfast in Christ. And this oneness that we have in Christ is for the cause of Christ. Here, church unity means war. For there to be peace within the church, there must be war against sin both within herself and without. We must fight for the gospel. We must fight with the gospel. We need to proclaim the gospel to ourselves. We need to proclaim it to one another. We need to proclaim it to this world. Putting to death our selfish ambitions and conceit. Standing firm, striving side by side for the gospel. Our unity is something one day that we will rest in. And simply enjoy. But it is never for us to play with. Never a light thing. It's for us to march with, living as heavenly citizens, worthy of the gospel of Christ, suffering whatever the cost, so that Christ might be magnified in this church. Pray. Holy Father, praise be to you that the church is one. There is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one faith, one God and Father over all who is over all and through all and in all. Christ, you are the head of your church. Every member is attached to you. Thus there is one body. Father, may the blessed truth of who you are, what you've done, who you've made us to be, made be magnified in this body. Make us one for the glory of your name. Grant us repentance and grant us faith to strive together side by side for the faith of the gospel. In the strong name of Jesus we ask this. Amen.